HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome in-kind co-founder Johan Munisinga. In this episode, we'll talk to Johan about a new model for restaurant financing, how in-kind supports minority-owned businesses, and we'll hear Johan's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. We've talked a lot about Julia's love and appreciation of restaurants. She liked nothing more than discovering new ones, meeting the chefs, and frequenting ones she really enjoyed. She was notorious for walking right into the kitchen to meet the chef and shake the dishwasher's hand after a meal. While Julia was interested in the chefs, she was a fan of the entire experience. It was very much the social and community aspects she valued. After all, the word restaurant comes from the French verb to restore. And Julia discovered her love of dining from that famous lunch of Sole Meunier at La Caronne in Rouen. The COVID-19 pandemic reminded the world just how much we value the sense of community restaurants provide as much as the meals. Someone who shares Julia's deep appreciation for all that restaurants offer is Johan Munisinga. Johan is the CEO and founder of InKind and the managing partner of InKind Credit Fund. InKind is a restaurant financing company which provides capital in exchange for food and beverage credits. In the last three years, InKind has invested in more than 450 restaurants across the U.S., Australia, and New Zealand. A serial entrepreneur and active angel investor who made seed investments in companies like Uber and Allbirds, Johan combines his passion for food with his expertise in finance and restaurant management. His goal is that in-kind will help foster transformation in the hospitality sector. Not afraid of making it a family affair, Johan's husband, Andrew Harris, is in-kind's chief risk officer, and his late brother, Raj, was involved in the company's founding. Johan is a Founder Circle member of MAD, the nonprofit started by Noma Chef and owner Rene Redzepi. He earned a BS in computer science at UCLA and was raised in Pasadena, just like Julia. There must be butter in the water there. 
He joins us today to tell us how in-kind invests in restaurants and about their commitment to supporting minority-owned businesses. Welcome to the podcast, Johan. Thank you so much, Todd, for having me. That's great. You could join us. So so let's start by talking about in-kind. It's fascinating, so I want to know all about it. So tell us, how did you end up starting it? And then tell us a little bit more about how exactly it works with those credits. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it uh, it all started um, in, in Pasadena, uh, like you said, and I grew up there um, along with uh, Julia Child. And um, we basically, my, my background is in computer science, and I, I, had, I started a company and uh, it was it was really it was hard in LA at the time to connect with other sort of um, tech entrepreneurs and venture capitalists, and so we ended up going to Boulder, Colorado, through and went through an incubator there for tech companies. And I sold sold that company, and then I, as you mentioned, uh, invested in some tech companies like Uber and Twilio, and and then I love food, um, so I moved to Washington D.C. and started investing in restaurants. And um, I did about 20 restaurant investments in the traditional way. And I realized that um, we can we can go into the details, but for a lot of reasons, like restaurant finance was really broken. Um, and so my husband, uh, he was a lawyer in England and he moved to DC and we decided through my experience going through a tech incubator to open our own restaurant incubator. And so the idea was we'd bring chefs in, we'd help them with the parts of the business that maybe they weren't so good at um, help them find space. And, and once they moved out, then we would, uh, invest in them. And so we actually ran that for five years. It was an 18,000 square foot space with, with two restaurants, a bakery, a cocktail bar, a wine bar, and really learned everything, you know, about operations and finance of restaurants. And what we realized was at the end of the day, restaurants don't make that much money. Um, and so paying investors out of profits or paying debt, you know, out of out of cash is really hard. But we had a lot of product. And so, you know, if you if you came into my restaurant, I'd give you a, a free old fashioned because uh, you're my friend and you know, you value the old fashioned at twelve dollars, because that's how much we we cost it on, you know, we priced it on the menu. But I value the old-fashioned at $2 because that's actually how much it costs me to, to pour the, the whiskey into that glass. And so we, we knew that there was this difference between what the customer valued the old-fashioned at and what the restaurant owner valued the old-fashioned at. And so we actually created a finance product around that. So if a restaurant needs a million dollars, we give them a million dollars and we buy $2 million in food and beverage credit from that restaurant restaurant never has to pay us back that million dollars. It's not a loan. Um, we, we, you know, they keep their profits and I'll tell you later why that, that was really important. Um, and then ultimately we take that $2 million in credit and we sell it across uh, our network of people. So we, we have an app called InKind um, and there's 800 restaurants on the app that we've financed. And as a customer, you can buy credit and you get a little bit of a discount. Um, and then you go in and you eat at those restaurants. And um, so ultimately, the restaurant is just responsible for serving food to customers when they come in. And let's say all $2 million in food is eaten, that might cost the restaurant $500,000 in product. So they got a million dollars from us up front. They didn't have to pay us back. And over time, it's just costing them $500,000 to serve that food. So restaurants are really excited by that because, you know, it's kind of a negative cost of capital for them. And, um, and we're sending in lots of great customers uh, into the restaurant. So it kind of works on the if I'm following, I di- I do actually have an MBA, but I was like I was really good at marketing communications, not the finance part of it. <laughs> um, so it it sounds to me that some of it works a little bit like gift cards, which is that you also benefit from the fact that there's a chance either that people don't use them or use up their full credit they purchase, and or if they do use it, they spend more. Is that part of the the business model? Yeah, it, it is. You know, naturally in, in the in the in the business we call it breakage. You know, so how much of that credit is never used? But honestly, with our with our restaurants and our and our guests, we try really really hard to make sure they go in and use the credits because ultimately, you know, we, the restaurants want them in there. They want to they want to give them a great experience, and uh, for those customers to come back. And so we, 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 you know, we'll notify people like if they haven't used their credit, you know, Hey, just so you know, you still have a hundred dollars in credit, you know, probably go check out a restaurant. Um, we also, 
we have priority reservations. We have different dining experiences um, at, at certain restaurants. So we really try to make to try to get customers to go in and use it, you know, their credits, and then ultimately buy more and and continue visiting the restaurants. In some cases, of course, people move or, you know, but you could gift your credit to someone if you move and, you know, you aren't able to use it. But but generally speaking, yeah, of course, there is some breakage, which which benefits the restaurant, you know, rather than maybe having to spend $500,000 on food. You know, now maybe they only spend 400000 on food because 20% of the credit never gets used. And does it, so how does in-kind make money? Is it like insurance that you're really sort of, you're getting money from customers in advance and you can invest that yourselves? Like what is the in-kind business model? Because obviously it sounds like a great deal for the the restaurants. Yeah, it, it um, so we basically, so if we give a restaurant, you know, that million dollars and we buy the two million in credit, we sell the credit to consumers at uh, usually about a 20% discount. And so we're selling that $2 million in credit for about $1.6 million. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously we have costs involved in selling that credit, but just from a pure cash perspective, we've given the restaurant a million dollars and we sell the $2 million in credit for $1.6 million. So, so it's basically you're generating revenue on the spread. Exactly. That's exactly right. Fascinating. And it seems, it seems so, like, kind of obvious that um, it, it's just amazing that someone hasn't – I mean, do you, have you heard of lessons where people try this before, but they – you know, it didn't work for whatever reason? Or do you think it's also the ability of technology and apps and reservation services that make this model much more feasible, at, you know, today versus 30 years ago? Yeah, I, I think, you know – Barter has always happened in the restaurant business, especially, you know, like somebody does something for you and you give them um, a, a gift card to your restaurant or you give, you know, your contractor, hey, I'll pay you, but I'll also give you $10,000 to have your holiday party at my restaurant, right? And that that's happened for a long time in restaurants. I think, so we kind of took that idea of barter, which is, you know, rather than paying someone in cash, you just pay them in product. Um, and we formalized it. I think the there's a lot of technology that we use um, that you couldn't have done this before because it has to be, for example, seamless, right? You can't send somebody a coupon and say, hey, go take this coupon in. I mean, you can, but it's just not a good customer experience. Um, so for us, everything is done in the app. It's integrated with the point of sale. You know, gratuity is, is properly allocated for. And then on the back end, we actually start to learn what people are buying and what they like. And so... We had a restaurant in New York, um, and a guy was buying a lot of white burgundy. And so we, our system noticed that, and they sent him a free $100 to try out a different restaurant that has a really, really great wine list, right? And mm -hmm. so he went last year, and he spent $10,000 at that restaurant. Um, I, I think on wine, I think the challenge to our business, you know, it's, and we've been doing this now, some version of it for almost 10 years, but really we did our first financing of in-kind in 2016, and the challenge is people don't like really, we don't really have an asset, right? Like we don't have a loan. Um, so we have credit in restaurants. And so for us to raise capital is more challenging. So initially, Andy and I did this with our own money. Um, and, you know, we actually in the first year, we lost a lot of money because we didn't know how much credit to buy. We didn't know how to sell that credit. And a restaurant might close, you know, and if we're holding credit into a restaurant that closes, then of course we can't sell that credit. Or if we've sold credit to somebody and the restaurant closes, we actually refund them anyway because it's not really nice, you know, if they can't use their credit. So the first year we we I think we had 50% losses because we just didn't we didn't know how to sell the credit that we bought. And 2017, 18, and 19, we spent really iterating and understanding and underwriting um, you know, how much credit to buy and how we sell that credit. And then the pandemic hit, you know, and we were really, really scared because we were holding millions of dollars in credit to restaurants. And we didn't know, you know, if restaurants were going to reopen. We didn't know what was going to happen in the world. And ultimately, what actually happened was our restaurants made it through the pandemic. And I think that was the proof that this model really is good for restaurants. And it's because our restaurants weren't behind a lot of debt or other investors. So the owners wanted to get through the pandemic. And um, 
and that enabled us and we were able to actually sell credit to customers who got to go orders and kind of the system and model continued to work. And for kind of relative scale, you know, we, today we buy about $50 million per quarter in credit to restaurants and our total losses from 2020 to today. So including the entire pandemic have been about $25,000, right? So yeah, so ultimately it is, it turns out it's a really safe asset. Well, maybe (laughs) put put that in context too, because I mean, a lot of people could not afford to lose $25,000, but for, for a restaurant of any scale, that's only like five months rent or something like that. Well, nowadays probably less, especially in the in in, in LA. <laughs> That's probably even not less even than five, five months, months, three months, yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I, I want to come back to that um, because I it, that that was a great segue to what I wanted to ask you about the pandemic. But I also wanted to just see, because sticking on the business school thing, I was curious with a credit. Now I'm thinking like airline miles and how their book kept. So getting all geeky on you, when you, do your credits go on your balance sheet as an asset or a liability then? Um, our credits go on our balance sheet as an asset. Um, because it's sort of like inventory that we're buying. Um, which is so sort of we, like airline miles. I think the airlines also book their frequent flyer miles, which are different. They're not exactly credits, but as assets as well. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we have, uh, yeah, so we, we, and we have different vehicles. You mentioned that, um, I'm the managing partner of in-kind credit fund. So in-kind credit fund is a vehicle that we use. That's not, you know, this is probably now way more MBA than, and I don't have an MBA, but um, than anybody on this, listening to this podcast a real wants world to know. MBA. <laughs> um, but we, you know, we don't, we don't actually buy the credits on our own balance sheet. We have a separate vehicle that buys the credits um, and, um, that's the in-kind credit fund. And then we have a warehouse facility that we've set up with other lenders. And so, you know, ultimately what this became because of that thing I mentioned to you was really a struggle to raise capital for our business because people are like, well, you don't really have an asset. So once we are able to prove that, wait a minute, we're able to buy credit and sell that credit and it, you know, and not lose money and generate a reasonable return, then lenders started to lend to us, so we created these other structures that are not in kind. So in kind, at its heart, is a tech company, you know, that connects hundreds of thousands of consumers with now 800 restaurants. Um, and then we have a separate entity called In Kind Credit Fund that actually owns the credit to the restaurants. Got it. Let, let, let's go actually back to stay on this access to capital topic, because what was interesting to me when I, when I saw a, one of your recent announcements that we had had conversations with several chefs who were also restaurant owners and entrepreneurs, particularly women. And, and when I'd asked them um, the question of, you know, what do you think the biggest barrier to doing what you've done is? And we had talked to, you know, well-known, successful, prominent chefs and women of color like Ozma Khan, who we talked to in episode 51, and Tanya Holland, who we talked to in episode 52. I was struck by how consistent they and others said the biggest barrier to diversity in the restaurant business is access to capital. And I know we did want to hear from you about your recent announcement and commitment so how tell us more about how inkind is is working to increase that access to capital for women and people of color yeah and um i, I totally agree that, that it is a it's a it's a big big issue i was actually um right before this on a call with the with the huge hedge fund who has the same it's the same thing you know like uh, people who are starting businesses uh women people of color lgbt uh folks like have harder time raising capital um, and in the restaurant world, usually, you know, you, you're a chef and you want to open a restaurant, you go to your friends and family and you say, Hey, I want to uh, open a restaurant. And, uh, they make, you know, angel investments in, in you. And ultimately what happens is people go, yeah, is this the type of person or does this person look the way I think a restaurant owner looks right. And, um, so that, you know, makes it harder, um, for, for minority groups and, and women to raise capital. We, we started the business really because we believe that restaurants are the nexus of communities. And, and you know, a lot of my, my mom, uh, the reason I love food is my mom's an unbelievable chef. Um, she makes great Sri Lankan food. Uh, and uh, as you know, Julia Child lived in Sri Lanka for a little while. Um, but, um, and I think 
I think for us, you know, the, my, my favorite story is a, of who somebody we funded um, was a mother-daughter team uh, in D.C. Mother was a refugee from Burma, and nobody wanted to fund them because they didn't look like the prototypical, you know, restaurant group, you know, that you would, you would invest in. I ate at one of their pop-ups. I thought the food was phenomenal, um, and we ended up financing them. And they, they won a, several awards in D.C. And the day, uh, probably a, a couple weeks after they opened, uh, I went in with my husband, Andy, and we sat down. And, you know, mom came out of the kitchen and she actually explained every item uh, from her childhood growing up in Burma and how, you know, what inspired her to put it on the menu. And it was probably the best meal I've ever had. You know, and you can imagine I eat at a lot of Michelin three-star restaurants. But this was just, it was so awesome, you know, to, to hear, um, her story and, and how, and, and the love that was put into the food. And I think that ultimately that's why we started the company, right. was to help people who really have this passion and for food and cooking. And, um, and because what we were doing, the way that we were funding people was, was kind of weird. You know, most b- bigger restaurant groups were like, I don't know what that is. I'm going to just go to my normal investors or go to my bank and so we ended up funding a lot of people that didn't have access to capital. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that was, it turned out to be great. <laughs> and I think that's part of the reason that we didn't have any losses during the pandemic was, you know, or we had very few was because, because these were, we kind of automatically had to select for groups of people that were, were, were different, right? And uh, weren't able to raise capital. But, and then the model just really worked. And what, what really happened after that, though, was the pandemic, you know, happened, our model worked, we were able to raise a lot more capital, and we just started working with bigger and bigger restaurant groups, because it's it's much, much easier, right, to work with a restaurant group that has a CMO and a CFO, and, um, and it's, you know, we can write a $5 million check to, and so we now we work with big names, you know, Danny Meyer at Union Square, Michael Mina, Jose Andres, uh, in LA, we have uh, Toka Madeira and Casa Madeira and, you know, uh, a, a lot of restaurant groups. But, but, my, but, but my passion and really my brother, uh, you mentioned my late brother, he, uh, he passed away in November. Um, he, he really, really, really wanted to do this because we were helping people and especially people that were or minorities or women or LGBT people or who didn't have access to capital. And so kind of when he died, you know, Andy and I kind of thought a lot about, you know, what are we doing? Well, we're, we're, we are maybe, I think we're not the biggest restaurant finance company and we're, you know, we're working with a lot of groups and we're helping a lot of restaurants, but we wanted to really kind of go back to our roots a little bit. So we're going to continue funding big restaurants, of course, you know, the company is doing that, but we, we announced a $250 million initiative just for independent restaurants, the majority of whom are, are women, LGBT, um, minority or veteran owned businesses. And I think that was, we did that partially to honor Raj. Um, but I think it's also like the reason we, 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 we wake up and we're excited about this, right? Is that we get to help, help people, give them access to capital, you know, as you know, Todd, running a restaurant is really, really, really hard. Um, so it's not just about capital. So we we also are providing, you know, technology. We're providing uh, marketing. We're when we're providing access to group buying organizations so big people can buy their food at negotiated rates. You know, things like that. So it's like capital, but it also comes from me having run a restaurant. In fact, I just opened another restaurant um, earlier this year in Austin, Texas, where we live yeah. now. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, it's amazing. It's a- <laughs> Proving that you are a glutton for punishment when you know as much as you do and you still, which is the whole like, allure and that's in movies and t- the romantic aspects that in pe- until people do it, you don't realize. Yeah, and it, well, in this case, I got, uh, my husband was like, under no circumstances can you open a restaurant. Like, because you're exactly right. Been there, done that. And so I got a very good deal on my lease because I said, hey, to the landlord, hey, I'm going to get divorced if I sign this lease, so you better make it a good deal. (laughs) Well, but I think there's also, there's clearly something addictive about it because even people who know how hard it is just 
keep the people who really love it keep doing it it's worth it to them and and i think it's talking about all those things you just mentioned it's the sense of community and the feeling that you get from being in that environment absolutely it is you know you're right i think the right word is addictive it's it's and and i think in you know in our case we had something to prove around our model. So we wanted to open without any investors, without any debt, with just in-kind funding and just the landlord support. And that enables us to give 50% of our profits go to the team, right? The people working there. So as you know, like labor and in kitchens and in restaurants is really, really, really tough right now, especially post-pandemic. And ultimately, you know, working in a restaurant also isn't necessarily like a, a sustainable, you know, job, right? Like, mm-hmm. And so we wanted to create a model where instead of having to pay profits to investors or paying cash to a bank, you know, we could give that money back to the people working in the restaurant um, to make their lives, more, you know, more sustainable and make this more of a career that works for them. So I think by getting the financing right, it enables like, because there's more money to give to other people, you know, in the restaurant enables us to solve other issues as well, right? Like our margins, you know, we don't have to charge maybe as much for food because we don't have to drive a certain, we don't have to drive a certain profit margin to pay back debt or investors, right? And so all of that kind of comes from fixing the financing problem. And, And for us, we, in Austin, we have like 70 employees now at InKind. And I wanted them to really empathize with restaurant owners. So we opened this restaurant. It took us six months longer than we expected, you know, just going through city permits and, you know, everything that could possibly have gone wrong went wrong. And I thought that was really important, you know, stressful, obviously, but important because... (laughs) You could write that off as training for in-kind staff, yeah. And does everyone have to do a rotation then? Does everyone have to spend a week in the restaurant doing one of the roles? Actually, that <laughs> that's what I wanted. Um, we, I haven't been able to convince um, the whole team yet that that's a great idea. <laughs> but but um, but we do family meals there. In fact, next uh, next week on uh, we have a one of uh, the whole t- whoever wants to on the team goes and cooks for everyone else, and you know we bartend and uh, so once a month we do a family meal uh, for the in-kind staff at the restaurant. All right, we're going to take a break and we'll come back to talk uh, more with Johan Munisinga of InKind. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back. We're talking to the co-founder and CEO of InKind, a restaurant financing and hospitality enhancement business, Johan Munisinga. So, Johan, I wanted to go back to that. I was curious when you were talking about this you know, very large amount of money, $250 million for minority-owned businesses. Is that money sourced all from consumer prepay, or how, how did you raise that much money? Um, we have some that's sourced from consumer prepay, um, because when somebody, you know, prepays and they, then they don't, they haven't used their credit yet, we can use that funding, um, to, we can use that capital to fund restaurants, but we also have, um, we have some great partners, um, you know, institutional lenders, um, that we, we go and borrow from and have seen our track record now of being able to return money back to them. Um, and so we, 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 I think in the last year we've raised uh, about $150 million 
Um, and, and we continue, you know, most of my, most of my job is, um, eating because <laughs> that's how I, how I underwrite, uh, which is a, a great part of my job. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <Sounds> rough. <laughs> Very rough. Um, and then, and then the other part of my job is, um, continuing to raise capital to, to meet the demand. Um, and, you know, especially in today's world, like interest rates are rising. Banks are definitely not lending, um, investors because, you know, the stock market last year was down and all of that. Are, are less likely to fund restaurants. And so we are really leaning in, though, because we know that, you know, this is the time where restaurants need need capital the most. Um, and so I, we're, we're, we're pretty aggressively out there raising capital and deploying it to restaurants. Understood. So I wanted to ask you, too, about this kind of dual model. Like we recently talked to Resi and we were talking in episode 182 with the editor, Paolo Lucchese. So it was much more content driven than Resi's business model. But at the same time, they have a similar model where they're both B2C and B2B and they're servicing, you know, sort of two sides of the same coin. And it sounds like InKind is doing that too. So how do you reconcile that between servicing your restaurants, which you've invested in, but also catering to your customers who are giving you up money up front with the credits? How do you how do you balance that? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that, you know, when 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 I ran my own restaurant in DC, I realized that you took run a restaurant, you have to be good at so many things, right? It's impossible mm-hmm. uh, to run an independent restaurant and be, you know, you have to be great at marketing, you have to be great at production, you have to be great at HR, you have to be great at, you know, everything, lease negotiation, technology selection, right? And, um, or, or even buying product, right? Like, um, well, or well, real estate, it turns out. Right? <laughs> yeah, or real estate, yeah. Or renegotiating your lease because some, you know, thing like a pandemic happens, right? Like, and it's just not, it's not possible. Like, nobody, even even Andy and I and Andy's really smart and you know we were running this restaurant and my best friend comes in one day and he's like hey I'm looking at your invoices like why are you paying so much for chicken and I'm like Nick I have no idea what I'm paying for chicken right like I'm running an 18,000 square foot restaurant and he's like well I can get chicken cheaper at the grocery store so I'm pretty sure you're overpaying <laughs> for chicken <laughs> and, and you know I think what one of the things that, that really the lesson from us running this restaurant was like, we have to be helpful to our restaurants in more ways than just financing. And, and one of those ways is marketing. So we do now marketing, you know, for 800 restaurants. And so when we fund a restaurant, we also really help them with their marketing. And we have, uh, I don't know, 30 people, you know, on our team that are really dedicated to marketing and using technology in a better way to market restaurants and build all this technology into our apps and understand what customers like and reach out to them and drive them into the restaurants, right? These are all things that an independent restaurant can't do on their own, like, mm-hmm. because they're focused on running their restaurant, right? And that ultimately is is how we integrate to your question, like, you know, are we a finance company for restaurants or are we like a consumer app? And I think the reality is that we're this sort of perfect integration of the two because we're using our consumer app to benefit the restaurant's marketing and driving customers in, right? Which is something we needed to solve as good partners of the restaurant. And I I tell every restaurant that I work with, I say, look, I'm your financial partner now. So whatever is happening, we will help you. You know, if you need me to go and bus tables, like I'll come in and bus tables, right? Like hopefully I don't have to do that very often. <laughs> just, just to your place in Austin. <laughs> yeah, well, there, there we bust tables a lot, right? But, um, but exactly, but, you know, but most restaurants where they really need help is not with buzzing the tables, but it's with marketing. It's with, you know, we, we have, um, we have a partnership with a, a company called Sodexo, which is this massive uh, food service company. They own a group buying organization called Integra. Integra buys something like $40, $45 billion a year worth of food, right? And so our restaurants can buy on those same contracts that Integra is buying on, right? So our restaurants, at their own choice, they don't have to, but they can save 20% on their purchasing because Integra is negotiating those those prices, right? So just things like that is where we say, you know what, we are the financial partner, but because of our experience running a restaurant, we understand that that means we also have to be like a real partner to the restaurant and help them in other ways other than just capital. So it sounds like it's like a symbiotic loop, if you will, is that 
you can service both sides equally because they're mutually reinforcing. Absolutely. Yeah. One, one of our, one of our um, core values is this triple win, right? And um, I like symbiotic reinforcing loop. I think that's a good one too. I'm going to make that. I'm going to use that. But um, yeah. It's <laughs> Feel <funny>. free. <laughs> Just credit um, me every time. Small world. Okay. <laughs> um, well, no one pays me to, to be on podcasts, so sorry, the royalty won't be very, very big. <laughs> but but um, the, yeah, I think that ultimately, like, that's how we make our decisions is, is this a win for the customer? Is this a win for the restaurant? And is this a win for in-kind, right? And that's that's what we've we found it. Um, if we can make every decision with that through that lens, and if there's a solution that isn't, you know, where it's like, oh, we're extracting value, but we're not giving value, then we won't make that decision. We reevaluate. And that, I think, is the true sort of beauty of the in-kind model is that everyone's a winner. The restaurant's a winner because they're getting capital at, you know, at a great, great, the best, best possible source of, you know, cost of capital. The consumer's getting uh, either a better experience or a discount or pride reservations or, you know, some benefit. And then in kind of, you know, is also making money um, and able to, to continue to grow this business. So I was really curious that, that to me in, in thinking about it, I was like, like, I don't know if I'm the target customer or like prepaying for restaurants. And I was curious how you figure out, especially if you're talking about like your example of the the Burmese restaurant in DC, if it's a brand new restaurant of someone that hasn't been, you know, proven before, or even has a new concept, how, how do you figure out that there is going to be a good source of prepaid credits to finance that restaurant? Or has it happened that now you're at a scale where, where that's not the, the main determining factor? Um, yeah, so we still, we, you know, we underwrite to we need to sell the credit to customers, but we don't first sell the customer to the credit. And sorry, we don't first sell credit and then fund the restaurant. We actually take the risk on it. So we'll say we believe we can sell the credit in this restaurant. So we give the restaurant the capital, and then we take the risk on making sure that we can sell it over time to customers. So our underwriting has gotten, you know, really good um, because we we can see okay, this type of restaurant in this neighborhood, we have this number of users that we think will want to go in. Right. And so we can we can underwrite pretty well um, around how much credit to buy in that restaurant because um, we know we know how much credit we're going to sell um, in that. Restaurant. So that comes down to sort of if you build it, they will come. But with this idea of, hey, we believe in these people, we know we can market them, we'll prepay and then get it established and then figure out the best way to market to sell the credits. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, one, we haven't announced this at all. Uh, but so you're the, you're the first to know, Todd, but we're okay. one of the <laughs> one of the one of the I would say the biggest weakness to in kind is this idea that we're asking customers to prepay to go into a restaurant, because that's just not how we think about dining, right? We go into a restaurant, we make a reservation, we eat our food, and then we pay our bill. And with in kind, you actually have to pre purchase and so people often are like, well, how much do I buy? You know, and we sell it in, in high dollar amounts because we want you to, to not use it all in one visit. We want you to keep going back and kind of acts as a loyalty program. What we are um, probably in the, by the end of the summer, we'll be launching a, a version of the product where you don't have to prepay. You just can go, you can open up the app. You can eat at any of these 800 great restaurants. And then once you eat there, you'll get credit back to then go eat at more restaurants with, right? So it's, we're not, we're kind of we're not removing the prepay. If you prepay, you'll get a big, you'll get a bonus, you know, um, and you'll probably get a bigger bonus to prepay. But the majority of customers when they dine out only like 97% of eating out is not prepaid. So we're, we're updating a little bit our model to allow people to not repay and just go in and eat. I think it'll be actually really, really um, compelling for like business diners as well, because it's like, oh, you get to take your, you know, your clients out, come put on the company card, and then you get 20% back, you know, into your account that you can take your family out for dinner with. Right. So that's, that's yeah, no. And at first I was like, oh, I, I'm not a prepaying person. But then I thought about it, it definitely works for, you know. I like to stop at Tartine in Pasadena and it's pretty expensive, but it's very good. And I was like, oh, well, I do go there like once a week, once every two weeks. And any of kind, when you really think it through, 
for your favorite places, if they're an in-kind app user, it does actually make sense because then you get a lot of value. It's just hard to get your head around. Oh, I'm definitely going to spend a thousand dollars a month, at, you know, at, at my favorite venue, even though you probably do. Yeah, and actually, so one of the big updates, totally agree, one of the big updates that we made last year in Q4 was when you buy credit on InKind's network, you can use it now anywhere in the network. So you could go in LA to Bluestone Lane for breakfast, you know, coffee, then you go to Tacos 1986 for lunch, and then you go to Etta for dinner, right, or Yardbird in LA or somewhere like that, right? Mm -hmm. So. Now it used to be that you bought credit and you only use it at that one restaurant, and that's and then once we hit enough of a scale, um, we decided, you know what, let's let's make this even better for the consumer. Now you can use your credit everywhere, and so it's much much easier to get people to to prepay when they know they can use it at you know, and then you're traveling to Vegas, you can use it there or New York, and I think we have 16 Michelin starred restaurants on the platform as well, right? So, wow. so it's really really good good restaurants, I think kind of stepping back, like a lot of people have tried to create this company where you're connecting guests with restaurants, right? Like you can imagine Groupon tried to do that by giving mm -hmm. guests like, you know, really big discounts, right? Foursquare tried to do it by giving people status, you know, you could be the mayor if you go in enough. Um, Dosh, which is a cash back card, you know, they, they tried to do it. But all, the, the issue is that all of them focused on the consumer, right? So if you give somebody a 70% discount, the restaurant doesn't want them coming in, right? Because that's not like, <laughs> that's not the the consumer type the restaurant's looking for, right? And so what we did was we focused on the restaurants because that was that was our passion and our background and who we wanted to work with. And so we ended up creating the best financing model for restaurants. Because of that, we were able to to work with the best restaurants. And then finding the consumers isn't that hard, right? So mm -hmm. if anyone downloads the app, they're going to be like, well, "Wow." I like all of these restaurants. Of course, I'll go spend money there, right? And it's just because we, we solved it by really thinking about what's best for the restaurant, not what's best for the consumer. But then naturally, what's best for the consumer is having access to and you know choice of the best restaurants. Before we went out of time, I wanted to get you to weigh in because we, we talked a little bit about equity in terms of access to capital. But I think I'm quite passionate about the, this issue, which... Danny Meyer in particular started to make progress on and then felt forced to backtrack. But I was curious your perspective on, you know, do you think, where do you stand on the elimination of tipping culture and also particularly getting rid of the national low minimum wage that still exists for servers, which I personally think is archaic and just is totally out of whack with everything else, but it's so ingrained. Is that something that you guys have looked into or thinking about? Or has your analysis been as many others is that changing it ultimately just increases costs for restaurant owners and diners alike, so that it it's just it, it, it it's not feasible? I was just curious of your perspective on that. Yeah, um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you my perspective as just as Johan, but um, I, I went and ate it some of Danny Meyer's restaurants in New York when they did the no tipping, and I loved it. Uh, the service was spectacular. Um, as a customer, I, I like I could see the price of things and I knew what it would be, right? And I think tipping, you know, we all know there's a lot of issues with tipping, right? Like people of color get tipped less, you know, like mm. you know, like things like that. And so I think that that and so I went back to to our restaurant in D.C. and I said, hey guys. I just had this great experience. This is going to be better for everyone. You're going to make more money. Let's get rid of tipping. And the entire service team was like, absolutely not, Johan. <laughs> we, are, we are not getting rid of tipping, you know, and because, because they, everyone had, you know, had been working a service for a long time. And it was always this idea of, you know, the harder I work, the, the more tip I'm going to get, which you know, which I don't think, you know, statistically is necessarily true. Uh, but that's that was the mindset. And so I wasn't able to uh, to change our restaurant. And then, as you know, Danny ultimately also changed their policy to go back to tipping. I, I'm not, you know, personally, I, I love that policy. I just think maybe the U.S. is not ready for that. Um, and 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 people, you know, expect that when they go to a restaurant, the tip's not included and that they're going to tip based on based on service, 
which, you know, again, if you look at the data, it doesn't really happen. People who tip usually tip the same amount regardless of service, mm. um, you know, and it's more about biases and other things like that that affect um, tipping. But, um, yeah, I know. I think it's hard. It's one of those things that I think eventually, hopefully, will change. You know, one of the things that in kind, like I mentioned earlier in the in the episode, we this new restaurant that I opened, um, we, we pay the servers more because we don't have to pay investors. And so hopefully at, at some point, you know, the majority of their compensation isn't made up by tips. That's right. It's, um, and, and we can provide things like healthcare and benefits and time off and, you know, eventually all, all the things that you'd want, you know, because the profits aren't, are, are able to, to go back into the, into the restaurant team. Mm. Um, but, but, you know, on the tipped wage credit thing, it's hard, you know, restaurant owners, especially if, you know, if you, if, if you, you have, have to have tipping because that's what the customer wants and that's what the staff wants. But then you also have to pay $15 an hour, you know, to, to everybody in the restaurant. Really, the only way you can do that is by raising prices, right? Because there just isn't enough money um, coming through because you also have to pay other obligations. You know, typically you have to pay debt or you have to pay investors. Um, and, and restaurants just don't make that much profit at the end of the day. So I think thinking about tip wage credit kind of in a vacuum is hard, right? I think we kind of have to look at it holistically, uh, you know, and and we need the... You need the business owners. The, the, here's the, I'll tell you the number one reasons that restaurants fail. Um, and um, a, a guy who runs the biggest restaurant group in Washington, D.C. told me this early on when I started the incubator. He came and he had lunch. He said, you know, the number one reasons the restaurants fail is because the restaurant owner goes and raises money from you know friends and family and says, I'm going to pay you back within three years. You're going to get all the profits. And then once you get paid back, I'm going to start to take 50% of the profits and make that number up, Right. But what happens is there's never enough profit made to pay back the investors. And so five years in, the restaurant owner is not getting paid. They're working there really, really, really hard for five years. And they're like, this is not sustainable, right? I'm going to get a job somewhere else. And they hand back the keys to the landlord because they can get out of the personal guarantee after five years, right? And they close the restaurant. And so that's the, like, that's the big problem with restaurants. It's just not financially sustainable, you know, from the, you know, the employee's perspective we just talked about, but then also from the owner's perspective. And that, that was the thing that we really kind of set out to solve, is how do we make the restaurant industry financially sustainable for all the stakeholders? And if we can do that, then the restaurants will be more successful and will thrive and we'll have these things in our community, you know, that we all want. Well, I think that's going to be music to a lot of people's ears. And if we can find ways to make you know, the majority of the restaurant industry work like that. I think it's going to have a much more prosperous and stable future. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll hear Johan's Julia moment. The Julia Child A Recipe for Life interactive exhibition is now open at the Henry Ford Museum of American Innovation in Dearborn, Michigan. Runs all summer until just after Labor Day. You can join Julia and Paul's meal at La Caron or step into Julia's shoes behind the camera on the set of The French Chef. For tickets and more information, visit thehenryford.org and click on Current Events. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Johan, what's your Julia Moment? Well, I um, was fortunate enough to go to the same school as Julia. Um, she went from fourth grade to ninth grade to a school in Pasadena uh, called Poly, uh, Polytechnic. And um, so we were uh, classmates uh, a few years apart. <laughs> but, <laughs> One or two. <laughs> One or two. Uh, but that was actually 
something that I was always really excited about. Um, you know, it was like, you know, it was one of our most famous uh, alum, alumnus and uh, it was Julia. And then when uh, I heard I got to be on this podcast, I was uh, extremely excited uh, to for that to be my, my Julia moment. Oh, that's lovely. And is that, I haven't ever talked to anyone. Is it like, are students at Poly aware of that? Is there a picture on the wall somewhere at Poly? Or was it just something Ooh. you would learn? I think everyone must be aware. I mean, she's got to be one of the most famous people <laughs> that went there. But I definitely, you know, my love for food and um, definitely, uh, I, I knew. I, 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 I'd, have to, I'd say probably nine out of ten people must know that she went to Bali. Yes, and for those who don't know, Pasadena is definitely very proud of of, of its um, connection to, to Julia Child. So uh, it's nice to hear that resonates, and that's a great connection. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, and then, you know, the fact, uh, Todd, that she then lived in Sri Lanka for a little bit, and my parents are from Sri Lanka, and they were immigrants to, to Pasadena, uh, I think also is super exciting. Uh, but th thanks for so much for having me today. It, it, our pleasure. Thanks for joining us. And thanks, everyone, for listening. For more, you can go to inkind.com, and it's at inkind underscore hospitality Instagram. You can get access to the inkind app by checking out either place. Video clips from The French Chef continue to arrive weekly on at Julia Child on Facebook. And please follow at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. I'm at T. Shulkin on Instagram. You can find Julia Child channel streaming The French Chef on Pluto TV, Plex, and Freebie, as well as on the PBS Living and PBS Documentary channels on Amazon. It is now launching on Tubi. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH, thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Armin Spengen. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.